Welcome to From What If to What Next, part podcast, part deep wellspring of imagination that is on the scorchingly hot summer's day on which we're recording this clear, fresh, cool and utterly delicious. Where would you be without us? Hopefully life without our fortnightly adventures in the world of the imaginary, yet also the world of the very real and very possible, is already starting to feel unimaginable. We'd love you to consider supporting what we do by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. It's only £3 a month, but it enables us to do these podcasts to make them sound amazing, to continue this rather thrilling adventure. We'd love you to become one of our revered supporters. It's a great act of service to the imagination of the world or something. Anyway, you'd be most welcome. And so to today's episode. COVID has taught us many things, but one of the key things is that air pollution, which already killed 40,000 people a year in the UK alone and almost 9 million people a year globally, also increases people's vulnerability to COVID. More enlightened cities are using this now as a moment in time to hugely reduce the share of our cities given over to cars. Barcelona is closing 30% of the streets in its city centre and instead filling them with trees, play and conversation. Milan is putting in 22 miles of new cycle lanes and new pedestrian areas. Every time I've visited Paris over the last few years, I've seen how the increase in bike lanes has led to more and more cyclists. Build it and they will come indeed. So what if we took this one step further and recognised that the future of urban transport is not replacing the current levels of traffic with electric vehicles, rather of cities redesigned so that nobody needs a car? The recent huge leaps forward in terms of electric scooters and a dazzling diversity of electric ways of getting around, as well as the explosion in the use of cargo bikes and bikes in general, even the movement in some cities for more people to swim to work, has the potential to deeply transform our cities. Our question for today, therefore, is what if the future of travel in cities was on two wheels rather than four? Carson Brown is a co-founder and head of product at Tor, an electric scooter brand. Having spent the majority of his career dedicated to developing micro-mobility products, he's a strong advocate for greener, more efficient cities and enabling people to change their lifestyle through considered design. Melissa Bruntlett is an urban mobility advocate specialising in communications and engagement. She's the co-author of Building the Cycling City, the Dutch blueprint for urban vitality, and the newly released Curbing Traffic, the human case for fewer cars in our lives. She focuses on urban mobility and sustainable cities, believes it's imperative to build cities that work for every citizen, using her experience as a writer, marketer and media producer to share the human perspective of multimodal transport to a mainstream audience. Professionally, she supports knowledge sharing and capacity building to create more equitable mobility environments, working with and advising public and private partners in Europe, North America and Australasia to develop effective and compelling communications and engagement plans and strategies She's a Canadian living in the Netherlands with her husband, Chris, and their two children. Welcome both to From What If To What Next. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a fun talk, isn't it? We're going to start with the way that we always start this podcast, which is inviting you to step into my time machine, which I have lovingly built during lockdown with some plans that I found. And, uh, and to invite you to make yourself comfortable and to close your eyes. And you can do this uh, if you're listening at the home as well. And to imagine that thanks to this time machine that I've built, you are traveling forward through time, leaving 2021 behind, traveling through 23, 24, 25, 
uh, until you arrive into a 2030 that's not paradise, it's not utopia, but it is the result of the nine years between now and then being a time of phenomenal change, that it felt like living through a revolution of the imagination, and so many things that were unimaginable in 2021 have become a reality in 2030. And you're emerging into a future in which transport in our cities is now mostly on two wheels rather than four. And of course, excellent public transport. Your work succeeded. Amazing. Well done. And the streets are alive with a dazzling diversity of vehicles whizzing past, electric, non-electric. It's amazing. It's a future that is the result of us having done everything we possibly could do. And I'd love to hear you bring that world alive for us, the future that you long for in the work that you do. What would it be like? What does it feel like? What do you see as you walk down the street? What does it taste like? Uh, Carson? Yeah, um, I think that one of the first things that probably comes to my mind is um, that when you when you visit to a country that it would... Um, I'd smell and taste like that, you know, that that fresh air, which isn't something that we could talk about today, but I definitely feel like um, walking down the road, I could immediately feel as if the only thing that tells me in a, that I'm in a city is the the building and the cityscape around me um, and, and not, the, not the smell or taste of, of the air. Great. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, walking down this future street, uh, the first thing that I hear is people around me. I hear kids playing in a public space. I hear friends cycling past, just having a, a general conversation with each other, just having fun. And I really hear the sounds of human life. Um, and I also hear the birds singing around us. It's To me, it's dusk and the nightingales are out or the blackbirds are out and singing, just providing a little bit of a choir for for the evening. and and uh, really making it a, a welcoming space, a place where I just feel happy. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you both. And so, Carson, I first heard you speak at a Kickstarter event where you talked about the vehicle that you've been designing and you talked very powerfully about how small electric vehicles are transforming how people think around getting around in cities virtually for free. Could you tell us a bit more about the revolution that you're seeing and the revolution that you're trying to nurture with your creations? Yeah, I think I'll probably start with what, what I'm seeing and what we're seeing and what inspired us to to really try and push the movement forward is a lot of people making a lot of personal decisions about, you know, you know what's best for them and really coming to a conclusion, whether that is electric scooters or electric bikes, you know, we, we're pro anything that's micromobility. We, we want to make the best electric scooter, but we actually, we have quite a few bike nuts in the company as well. And and I think that we we see that jump that people have made as being something that is so different to everyone else around because there aren't decades of examples. You know, we're talking about things that have really only changed in the last few years en masse. And the, I think what people who have made that jump are noticing is yeah, they can get around from city from point A to point B for almost zero cost, you know, negligible cost. We're talking one or two P to charge up your, your light electric vehicle. Um, we're talking about the, you know, in the scooter's case, the ability to take that product inside and not worry about it not being there when you get back outside, because this is the world that we live in. Um, we're seeing things like people change their habits where they they can either go to maybe car sharing because they don't need a car most of the time because they can can supplement their daily activities that don't fit around public transport with a, with a bicycle or a scooter. And um, so what we decided for ourselves is the reason behind 
a lot of the innovations that we put into the product is what is the kind of what is the expectation of the vehicle that you would have in a few years time how safe would that be how would that ride how would that how could you make something that would inspire people to make the jump as opposed to make it make it be such a um, almost like a bold thing um, that it would be desirable and and we think that that's probably essential uh, to to encourage people to make that transition towards uh, two-wheeled electric vehicles, more sustainable vehicles, changes in behavior, because that's what it is ultimately. We're trying to drive behavioral change, and that's difficult. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And Melissa, through your research and your work, where would you say we are now globally in terms of the move away from the car? Are we anywhere near a tipping point? And what are the trends and stories that give you the most hope right now? Yeah, I think we're, I think we're at the cusp of a tipping point. I think there's more and more recognition, uh, not just from within uh, sustainable mobility circles, but also just the general public, more people that are understanding the benefits uh, and interested in the benefits and the ability to choose non-motorized or non-car uh, travel to get around. Uh, and so I'm seeing that shift. I think COVID definitely pushed cities a lot further and, and pushed people's general, the general public's uh, understanding further in that they were able to experience low car cities just through the, the necessity of people to work from home. So I'm, I think we're, we're getting there in some cities. And I, you know, some of the really promising ones, you mentioned quite a few at the beginning of the show, but even in smaller communities in the US, I'm seeing uh, through the work I do or through the research that we've done, um, cities with you know populations of 300,000 really putting that investment into public space. So whether that's for how people move through a city or even how people gather, you know, thinking about place in a, in a more holistic way, bringing places to bring people together. So I think we're, we're getting there. There's still a lot of work to be done in a lot of cities, but I am bolstered by the, the speed at which it's now happening. Because when I first got started, it felt like it was a turtle's pace. And, you know, some cities were moving faster than others, but others were so far behind. And I think there's always going to be people that, or cities that are playing catch up or towns or small communities, but certainly seeing that shift. And it really, it makes me feel very positive. I mean, the suburban community that I grew up in, in Kitchener, Ontario, which is a, just south of Toronto, it, you know, it was, it is still pretty car do- uh, dependent, but I know that the, the, the council themselves are taking it upon themselves to realize how do we transform these streets to enable safer trips for people on bike or on light electric vehicles? You know, they're really thinking about that now. Whereas I think five years ago, it wasn't even part of the conversation. So I, I think we're getting there. Um, and my hope is that it keeps keeps moving forward at an expedited pace. <laughs> mm. So where would be your kind of poster child place? Is there one place that would stand out as really leading from the front? I think there are so many, <laughs> but I think one of the, I think really promising ones. So in 2014, I visited Auckland, New Zealand, and they had done a, a bit in terms of shared space, but in the last year, uh, they've really expedited. They've, uh, they're implementing a traffic circulation plan, similar to what many cities in the Netherlands have done to push unnecessary car trips out of the city center, uh, really looking at pedestrianizing or creating more bike and pedestrian shared spaces much faster than they would have they were thinking about back in 2014. So I think for me that the advances that they're making there um, and just the forward thinking they have is is one that I really like to watch because I really enjoyed myself there. So it's got a 
warm place in my heart, but it's nice to see that they're taking these, uh, the things that we talked about when we were there and, and, and bringing that a step forward. Mm, fantastic. And we're, we're living in a world where huge amounts of money and a lot of very powerful psychology is invested in getting people to buy cars. And we're tricked into believing that the kind of cars we buy say a lot about who we are. It's nonsense, of course, but it's very powerful uh, nonsense. But what might you say making the decision not to buy a car and to buy a cargo bike or an electric scooter say about those people? And how have you seen those buying decisions change people's lives? How could we make the move away from the car as irresistible as the marketers want to make the move to stay with the car? Carson? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, I don't know if in that talk, actually, I brought up the concept of the Mustang. No. I think it's a really powerful um, example that we've used in the past to allow people to realize how you can really capture the youth in an image. You know, a lot of people grew up with a, with a Ford Mustang. Even if they weren't based in the US as this car that was just so cool, you know, <laughs> that you could get excited about it and you could, all of the all of the marketing speak that they said about freedom and the open road and all those, you know, it just was just typified by that, the images that kind of were surrounded by that vehicle. And we think that a huge amount of what has to be done is is with those change makers, is changing the image. You know, you you spoke about what did the person who bought a cargo bike or an electric scooter look like? Well, that's changing. They looked like a pioneer a few years ago, and now they look just like you and me. Not the same, <laughs> you know? Um, they look like more and more everyday people. But what we really need is we need the, the people who I think people aspire to be, and they aspire to look like to be making those decisions. Because once they're doing that, you'll see everyone follow. And, and I think that history has told us that when it comes to Kind of consumer decisions in a big way. Mm. Melissa, what's your thoughts on on how, how we make this shift irresistible? Uh, I completely agree with Carson, and you know it's something that uh, throughout the course of my advocacy and my work, I've, I've been striving to do is how do we make cycling as sexy as driving for people, for lack of a better way of expressing it. And you know it's why when you know about ten years ago or so, the the, the cycle chic blog really took off for a lot of people because it was showing everyday cycling in a in an attractive way not necessarily in a diverse way i'll admit that but uh definitely showing how cycling can be done by anyone in any clothing uh on any bike um, and that it's that it's easy and accessible and i think that using that as a as a starting point and and really representing the people that we want to see cycling is is a big part of that and and something that I really try to push for and whatever we're producing is you know are we representing the people that we want to be cycling because we know who is cycling and that's fantastic and and they'll keep doing it because they've drunk the Kool-Aid as we say but uh, to really get you know a suburban housewife with two kids to get on a bike or buy a cargo bike you need to show her that there are people just like her doing that um, to get into maybe low income communities and show them that cycling is an option for them. You need to represent them in the, in the marketing that you're using. Um, but I definitely agree using star power is a great tool. Uh, I love seeing the images from uh, particularly from New York city of, of very famous people cycling around with kids or with the, you know, their partner, you know, that for, for a lot of people, it's like, Oh, well, if Ryan Reynolds is doing it, then I can do it too because he's Deadpool and he's cool. <laughs> for example, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and I'd, I'd really recommend for people who are listening the film Motherload that Liz Canning made about, about the cargo bike revolution in America, which makes cargo bikes very, very cool indeed, I think. Um, this week uh, in the news, there were stories from London where in some places, some local residents were hitting back against the local low-traffic neighbourhoods that had been implemented around where they lived, damaging planters and kind of arguing and lobbying for a return to how things were before. What are the key things that city governments can do to really signal and support a deep cultural shift from two wheels to four? And how might they do it in such a way that minimizes the risk uh, of this kind of blowback? Carson? That's a harder question. Um, I think that it's, there's a real chicken and egg problem here where we have to be realistic and say, people still need to get to work. And they still need to take their kids to nursery. And they still need to do all these things that are part of the stresses of achieving what they have to do in their daily life. And combining that mental load with making changes that are necessary for the planet isn't something that we do very well as humans. Um, And I think that the issue with the chicken and egg is that the cities almost have to move faster so that the option is there and it's accessible for people. One of the problems we found and what changed a lot of the things about we built how we built our vehicle was we knew that the cities would lag behind the vehicle innovation. So we were forced to address the fact that a lot of people wouldn't feel safe on today's electric scooters. A lot of people don't feel safe cycling in London. So if you change or restrict how they get to work now and you don't present them a, a really viable option that they're not afraid of, that they can feel like they can go and do, I think you're always going to get a little bit of pushback. And all we can do is try and make, you know, from from a company perspective, is try and make vehicles that make people see that actually you don't have to wait for that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Melissa? Yeah, I think there's there's two answers or two things to think about uh, in addressing this question. And, And the first is, you know, from the lived experience of being here in the Netherlands, one of the key things over the 50 years that they've spent developing the low traffic neighborhoods and the cycling infrastructure, mobility infrastructure here, has been to look at it from a network perspective. Um, And a lot of times in a lot of cities, and even here when they were first starting, infrastructure or low traffic neighborhoods are put in very piecemeal and they don't connect to each other. So exactly as Carson's saying, if you don't make it a viable option, people will revert back to what they're used to, what they're comfortable doing and what's easiest. So it's necessary that when we're putting these in that we think, okay, where are the places that people want to go? And maybe it's not work. Maybe that's not a trip we need to, we need to address right away, but maybe it's getting kids to the nursery or to school or getting to the corner store or to the local uh, high street. You know, how do we design in a way, whether temporary or permanent, to allow people to make those trips on foot, on cycle, or other uh, light motorized vehicles or electric vehicles. Um, Because if we're not thinking about how do we connect all these places to each other, then inherently we will, as pragmatic species, choose the easiest option. And right now, for a lot of people in a lot of places, it is still the car. But the other thing to consider, and, and I think something that I've read about when it comes to the low traffic neighborhoods in the UK, is that there's a popular support for it. However, they're not the vocal majority. They're very much a minority of people and they're not being heard. And so I think what's imperative for a lot of counselors, a lot of leaders is to actually speak to these people um, and really go to these neighborhoods and find out what it is they want there and have them involved in the process. And a lot of times 
they'll find that the the process goes a lot smoother uh, and there's more acceptance because there's a greater understanding of what's coming. And, and they're actually hearing from those people that can't make it out to every town hall or, or every engagement session. They're, they're really addressing the needs of the people in those communities. Mm, thank you. That's one of the things that always strikes me being in Amsterdam is, is, that, is that so many people on bikes and they're rubbish, kind of clunky, great, heavy metal bikes, uh, steel frame bikes, and people on there with their shopping and their kids and the, the art of people cycling and texting uh, at the same time is always quite extraordinary. And, uh, and of course, you know, when we go there from the UK, we just assume that's how it's always been. But of course, it's actually the result of, as you say, a 50-year intentional redesign process. It hasn't just appeared overnight. I mean, what was, what were the, um, how long should this process take, do you think, Melissa? Um, I think nowadays, yeah, the, the Netherlands started this process in the early 70s as a result of a couple of catalysts, not too dissimilar from the COVID-19 pandemic that just forced people to think differently and the government to think differently of how, how people were to move. But one thing that we really try to emphasize or, is that some of these squares, some of these open spaces, for example, Delft's main market here in the town where I live, was a parking lot as late as 2004. So it doesn't need to take 50 years some of these changes can be made in, in a decade or in less time. And what is really fantastic about the time that we live is we can visually see all these cities that are implementing uh, various changes and learn from them and adapt them for our community. So it's not like it was perhaps, you know, in the early 70s where there was no blueprint, for lack of a better way of saying that. There, there's so many examples now that it's really easy for cities to learn from each other and hopefully move faster. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And Carson, when you're designing uh, these things or when people are choosing to invest in their option of, of, of getting around, what considerations should inform our choices? How, how should we decide what's the, what's the best option for, for us in our own situation? I'm going to do my best to not be biased and just describe exactly what we've made. Um, <laughs> you're welcome to do that as well. Why not? Like lots of things, I think you have to, when you're trying to make a change, you have to do whatever the decisions are that make you able to continue to reinforce that change. Like if you are trying to exercise, you know, you need to do whatever it takes that helps you make sure that you do it regularly until it becomes a habit. So some of those things for, for us were, okay, well, how do we make it feel more stable than any other product? So I think stability is a key thing. Um, we grew up or, or kind of, I'd say my generation and older grew up riding bikes. The younger generation have little scooters. So, you know, that was kind of their first mobile vehicle, basically. So it's important that you kind of start with something that has a really good stability because there will be a bit of a learning curve and you want to feel as confident as you can as early as you can. Um, lighting is exceptionally important. I mean, I know that across Europe, you get various amounts of city lighting, but if not going home via a scooter in our case, but let's say a bike uh, is limited by the fact of whether there's light or not, I mean, that wouldn't stop someone from driving home in their car. So that's got to be like part of your picture. I think that a visibility in terms of from a safety standpoint is also important. So not just can you see, but can other people see you? All of these things help you feel like you don't have to worry about uh, your environment as much. You can just 
you can do what they try and sell you in the commercials. You can feel free. You can feel the air going by you and you can just go on about what you want to do and, and you will feel much less restricted. I think the last things are probably portability. That's, that's slightly secondary. The portability is, like I said, feeling confident that the vehicle, bike, scooter that you have is going to be there when you come out because as sad as it is, I've got friends and family who have gone through multiple bikes in London um, that are not there at the end of their workday. And the ability to take it in, I think, is another reinforcement because when you lose your bike, it probably takes you a couple of months to go, oh, I'll do that again and, and risk losing another one. So I think that those are probably the big ones. Mm. There's a couple of things that really stood out when I heard you speak about uh, the the vehicle that you created was you, you talked about the sweat factor or there was a word you used that was, you know, that some people don't mind arriving at work a bit sweaty or in my case, very sweaty when, when, they, if, when they cycle in. But actually a lot of people like to arrive at work completely not sweaty, which I'd never really thought about before. And also the, the way that you had designed the backlight so that rather than it just being a light, it shone up and you became the backlight. It sort of illuminated you from the back. I thought that was really uh really amazing so yeah so people can look that up i'm sure and, and and find out more about that so this podcast is about imagination and i'd love to hear from you both your thoughts in terms of how a, how living in a city that is moving with purpose in the direction that we've been talking about away from four wheels and towards two or three uh, wheels how it would become a more imaginative place how it would become a place that feels more alive with possibility and melissa as someone who's visited a lot of places where that's happening do you have any thoughts on that how how could this move from where we are now to where we could get to from what if to what next if you like how could that move allow us to feel that there's more possibilities and that life feels more imaginative? Uh, well, I don't need to, need to necessarily imagine. Um, it's very much my lived experience in the city of Vancouver um, that when I moved there in 2007 was that people cycled, but not, uh, not in the way that they do now. And it was, you know, strategic investments that really got people cycling and got me cycling. Um, I mean, I grew up on a bike as well, but it was more, you know, use it here and there. But as I got my driver's license, I used it less and less. But over the course of the 11 years that I lived in that city, it changed how I experienced the city. And so I was much more connected to the nature around me. It's a very green city. And even just cycling around the trees or, or next to the reeds, you, you just feel yeah, just more alive. I, you know, it really sparked this passion in me to really try to communicate that to others. So that became the inspiration and inspired the creativity to really uh, help communicate how, what that felt like for me to other people. And, you know, it's, it's just that it's, it's being connected to the nature around you. It's being, it's having the opportunities to be in an environment with people that are maybe outside of your normal circle, seeing how other people live, seeing that joy on their face when they're out moving in a more human, human powered way. Yeah. It, it really changes your perspective and, and, opens your eyes to a lot of possibilities that continue to drive me. So even though now I'm living in a place where, well, I mean, arguably that's part of why I keep pushing forward and why my imagination keeps being stirred to what is next is I get to be surrounded by that kind of environment all the time and, and really, you know, want to share that with other people and need to find cre creative ways of making sure that, um, you know, anywhere can, can try to attain uh, some of what I get to experience that I'm lucky enough to experience every day. Thank you, Carson. Yeah, um, I, I think 
I don't have the experience that Melissa has of traveling to all of these great places. It's on the, it's on the cards, but I've just got to stop working so much. Um, <laughs> I think of what people could, you know, see and experience. I think ne- like now something Melissa said resonates with me. Um, when you go through a city by bike or by car, it's different. I think anyone who's done it and has done it regularly will tell you it's different. It's, it's, it's oddly different. It's hard to describe, but it almost feels like you get there faster, but you got there in slow motion. You saw more than you would have seen. You experienced, you know more than someone who doesn't uh, commute by that, that method or, or get around by that method. And it all kind of contributes to the experience. And, and I think that I'd like to see a lot more of the the streetscape be dedicated to other things because you know if you we we work in central London and you know the amount of lanes and traffic and constant construction all these things that are going on that are just um they would be unwarranted if people embraced or were given the um kind of the necessary tools to embrace these forms of transport. Mm. Thank you. There's a there's a town in France I visited called Ungersheim, which is one of the most amazing examples of transition I've ever visited. And one of the things they did there was they sold a school bus and they bought a horse. And the horse picks up the kids and takes them to school, pulled by horse. And when I was there, I met a guy who said, well, all this transition stuff's great, but that horse is a bit much. And I remember we had an interesting conversation about, well... But it's it's kind of magic. Like, why can we not design an element of magic in, into transport? Something that you really remember. You know, if you vi- if you visit uh, Amsterdam by bicycle, it's such a more magical experience than visiting it in the back of a car. So, our question for this conversation has been: What if the future of travel in cities was on two wheels rather than four? I'm just wondering if there's anything that either of you wanted to say on that that I haven't asked you the right question for any last thoughts any last reflections that you'd like to share uh, Melissa that's a great question there's always so much more I could, I could talk forever <laughs> <laughs> any um, key nuggets yeah I think you know so often when we're talking about cycling we're really focused on uh, the vehicle or the built environment around and one of the things I really hope to communicate in addition to that is what it's what it feels like. Uh, to be around people moving in the same way as you. Uh, and, you know, it's one of the things I shared in the, in, the, in the second book, In Curbing Traffic, about the experience I had cycling around Vancouver, which was wonderful, but oftentimes very isolating. Or every time I got on my bike, I, it was a form of protest. Here, I'm around people, I'm around other women, I'm around a variety of other people, uh, and I feel a part of a, a community without it being a niche community. It's just how people move. And I think when we're talking about moving cities forward to uh, more sustainable mobility, whether that's cycling or walking or light electric vehicles, uh, where we're more open and aware of people around us, it's really important to emphasize that, uh, that benefit that we get from, even if we don't know the person moving next to us, to have that uh, connection and that social opportunity is, is really valuable. Um, and I, I really uh, look forward to more and more cities uh, experiencing that on a more regular basis. Thank you. Thank you. And Carson, any, any last thoughts? No, I think, I think one thing you, you did say, um, which I, I kind of sometimes mention and sometimes don't, was, you know, this, this sweat factor. And I call it the sweat factor because it's something no one wants to talk about. Yeah, I, I, I am, I'm not, you know, a major sweater, but I would say when it gets hot, once it's started, it's not fun. Okay. We need to be honest about this and realize that it is a factor in whether people get to work by an active form or a passive form. 
And one of the things we noticed, um, if we kind of go back to our original motivations to get into making what we, what we aspire to be the best electric scooter in the world, is the people on these vehicles are, are doing it for such a variety of reasons, are such a variety of age, um, gender, um, race, because there is no filter. So unfortunately, when you make, you make something an activity, when you make it an exercise, you immediately filter towards people who are willing to embark in that in addition to whatever task they're trying to do. But all that be get it to work or doing an errand. And in this case, with scooters, one of the one of the amazing things is because it's passive, it's just like cars, buses, and that makes it accessible to a huge number of people. And I think that that's, that's really going to accelerate the transition alongside bikes. So I hope that people feel just as welcoming towards scooters as they have been pro bikes for the last 20 years because they can, you know, cohabitate the same space and really push the transition to be even faster. Wow. Thank you both so much. This has been wonderful. And thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, thank you for being my guests here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been informative in some ways and also very uh, enjoyable. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks very much, Rob. Thanks to my guests, to Carson and Melissa, to everybody for subscribing, to you for listening, and to Ben Adicott for making it sound so glorious. And we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.